All right, we are on the last day of the Leaven of Liturgy, which is kind of session 17, but I'm going to call it bonus session, because we've actually finished with the liturgy, and we're moving on to what I'm calling liturgical mathematics, which is just a little extra section here that I'm doing at the end. Uh, because we have a few changes we're going to institute at St. George, two of them are easy, one of them is almost not even mentionable, but I'll mention it anyway. And then the other one has a big theological story behind it. So that's what we'll spend most of our time on today. Uh, it's called the Arate Fratres. But um, I will say, I'll put a little plug in here about the class that's upcoming, which will be entitled An Examination of Conscience. So through the season of Lent, we'll be talking about the examination of conscience, uh, which comes in many different forms. There's a lot of different advice on that. Uh, Some people wish to have absolutely no help from anyone when they examine their conscience. Others recognize there might be a weakness to not asking for any assistance. Uh, And so we'll talk about lax conscience, scrupulous conscience, well-formed conscience, etc. We'll talk about that for the season of Lent. We're hoping to have a, a guest speaker towards the end of Lent, and I'll, that'll be a surprise, but I'll let you know uh, when, we got that, when we have that confirmed. Um, but for today, bonus session, liturgical mathematics. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who has committed to thy holy church the care and nurture of thy people, enlighten with thy wisdom those who teach and those who learn, that rejoicing in the knowledge of thy truth, they may worship thee and serve thee from generation to generation, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right. So, uh, I don't know if I said this aloud last week, but I'll say sometimes uh, when you're in a traditional Anglican church, you, you have the question, where did they get that from? When you're in a service and they say something that you, you're flipping through your prayer book, you can't find it, um, where did they get that from? Almost always, the where they got it from is the word missal. And it's this big, giant book here that winds up uh, on the altar of most of our churches. Even churches that use what's called the altar service book, which is a very thin book, which we have, we read the epistle from the altar service book. That is basically a large print, large print book of common prayer. Even churches that only use the, uh, the altar service book have elements typically in them, where you say, where did they get that from? The answer is still the Missal. The Missal is, uh, it represents, for the most part, the, a more ancient history of the church prior to the Book of Common Prayer. So this is more like late medieval, medieval and sometimes patristic uh, elements that were trimmed out or left aside in the Book of Common Prayer. Eight, uh, 19th century the question began to arise, why can't we have some of those things back? If they're not inappropriate, if they're not wrong, why can't we have them back? And there was crickets for an answer, so a lot of the church said, okay, well then we will bring it back. Um, this, uh, when we talk about St. George's and the, the, sort of jokingly, the St. George Rite, which every parish has its own rite, the way that they do it at their parish, uh, visiting clergy are always nervous to go to someone else's church because 
You have to ask all these questions. How do you end the service? How do you do this? Do you all say this? Do you all say that? Do you say it once? Do you say it three times? Do you sing it? Do you say it? Which, which toning, uh, which uh, chant do you use, etc.? Uh, in our St. George Rite, I would say we're a prayer book church with elements of the Missal added. There are some churches we could say it's a Missal church. Every rubric, everything is, uh, every word has come right out of the Missal. There are other churches that are straight prayer book, but very few. Like straight down the line, only prayer book, very few. Most continuing Anglican churches or traditional Anglican churches are something like a blend. So our blend has a couple of uh, flavors in it that don't match, and so I'm going to fix them today, (laughs) or we're going to at least uh, talk about it. We've done little changes like this, usually during the season of Lent before. You remember there was that one portion of the liturgy where I would say, the peace of the Lord be always with you, and though the congregation says, and with thy spirit for the entirety of the rest of the service, at that point, at St. George, we said, and also with you which doesn't fit the rest of the service, but it had just become our thing. We said, and also with you, which is the new Episcopal liturgy or uh, uh, liturgy nouveau. Uh, And it only was in that one part of the liturgy. So during Lent one year, I said, all right, we're going to rip this off like a Band-Aid, fix this part. Okay, so we got a couple of Band-Aids to rip off today. Number one. This is liturgical mathematics. Multiplication. Okay. The centurion's prayer. This one's easy. When the centurion's prayer is said, which is, uh, well, Lord, I'm not worthy that thou shouldst come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my soul shall be healed. We at St. George say it one time. The rubric uh, about that particular prayer says, very simply, uh, and then thrice, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldst come under my roof. So, everyone else on the planet says it three times, and we say it once. (laughs) I'm going to say, let's start saying it three times. That'll be starting on uh, Ash Wednesday. The significance of that is not utterly different than uh, the Kyrie, Iliason, which in the prayer book has the threefold. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. But if you notice at our church, it's the ninefold. Lord, 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 Christ, 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 Lord, Lord, Lord. It's the ninefold. Most of our churches do the ninefold. It's not much different. Um, and so the centurion's prayer is instructed by the missile tradition, reinserted into the prayer book tradition by most continuing Anglican churches. You won't find it in the prayer book, but you will find it in the historic church. And the rubrics instruct to say the prayer thrice. And so we shall, to bring ourselves in line with most continuing Anglican parishes, and with tradition. Part of the reason that I have not done this in the past is I have had a hard time stirring myself up to the point of caring. But now I'm going to say I care. (laughs) And just because um, we're going to do our best to participate in common prayer with the rest of the continuing Anglican Church. Any questions about the multiplication of the centurion's prayer? It's not a hard one because... You won't get caught off guard. Centurion's prayer is simply repeated three times. And if you miss beginning it, you'll just say it again. Um, every once in a while, you'll notice when people visit our church, we say, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldst come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my soul shall be healed. We all stop, and the visitor says, 
Lord, I am not... Ooh. You know, they're the only ones who started to say it three times. So anyway, we're going to... Uh, we're going to... Uh, do that. If no questions, we're going to move on to the next one. Subtraction. Okay? We did multiplication. Now we're going to do subtraction. And I thought I had a lock, stock, barrel, and bayonet rule for this, and I found out I don't. Okay. At the end of the lessons, well, let's just read the rubrics for morning and evening prayer do not include thanks to be, be to God when the lessons end. <coughs> So when you're in morning prayer or evening prayer and someone reads, here endeth the first lesson, here endeth the second lesson. Bishop Grundorf made a big deal about this and I didn't tell you. Now I'm telling you. (laughs) He said, you're not supposed to say thanks be to God after the first and second lessons of morning prayer. If you never go to morning prayer, you'll never uh, uh, have any trouble. And I was going to say that uh, the same rule applies to the epistle in the Eucharistic service until I found a rubric that says, the church shall all say, thanks be to God after the epistle. So never mind, I shouldn't have even introduced you to my thought. But when we do morning prayer, if you notice an awkward silence after the lessons are read, that's what you're supposed to do. When, when someone says, uh, here endeth the first lesson, crickets. Here endeth the second lesson, crickets. Uh, you can see why I haven't been uh, really, really excited to change these things over the past 10 years because, you know, okay. <laughs> so, uh, missile rubrics for Holy Communion epistle, uh, instruct the practice. Here endeth the epistle, thanks be to God. So we'll keep the thanks be to God. By the way, like saying Alleluia at the end of Depart in Peace to Love and Serve the Lord, we would perpetually catch people alone saying, thanks be to God, like that. And it would be all this giggling and all that. Let's just not even do it. So thanks be to God stays in for the Eucharist. But for morning prayer, we're going to try and trim it out. It's really not supposed to be there. It's something that has developed over time. But any questions about that one? That one's really easy. We've had a multiplication. We've had a subtraction. And now we're going to have an addition. Okay, this is the big one for today. The Arate Fratres, which of course is Latin for pray brethren. The prayer sounds like this. The priest turns to the congregation. This would be right at the, uh, at the end of the prayer intentions. So I've, we've prayed for the persecuted church. We've prayed for individuals. Uh, I have said uh, the Holy Eucharist is also offered this day for the peaceful repose of so-and-so, so-and-so. And at the very end of that, I say to you, pray, brethren, that this my sacrifice and yours, I should have and yours in there, be acceptable to God the Father Almighty. The answer which you respond with sounds like this. <clears throat> May the Lord receive this sacrifice at thy hands to the praise and glory of his name, to our benefit and to that of all his holy church. If you're wondering if you'll ever remember that, it'll be printed in your bulletin. You will miss it the first several weeks, but then you'll catch it. Those that are excited about it will say it because they were raised with this. A lot of folks were raised with this prayer and the fact that it was removed, they don't know about. So the, uh, the prayer of the priest pray, brethren, that this my sacrifice, you know what, I'm going to fix it right now. This my sacrifice 
and yours. Save, play. Very good. There we go. So now that's real good. Introduce it and have it wrong on the screen. Pray, brethren, that this my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to God the Father Almighty. Once again, one of the reasons of doing this is almost all of our churches have this uh, prayer and response said, trying to join in with the common prayer of our tradition. And now we're going to explain what in the world is that supposed to mean? The Arate Fratres uh, is like an elaboration of the, what we call the salutation. The Lord be with you and with thy spirit. That's a very, very short version of what's called the salutation. Lord be with you and with thy spirit, originally in Latin, Dominus vobiscum et cum spiritu tuo. So if you listen to EWTN and they've got a, a Latin service on, you'll hear, Dominus vobiscum et cum spiritu tuo, something like that. We just say, the Lord be with you and with thy spirit. The Arate Fratris is not utterly different. Just before the prayer for the whole state of Christ Church, we're turning to offer to the Lord our confession, ourselves, our souls, our bodies, etc. And the priest is approaching the altar for the consecration. Okay? Um, if you want to talk about oblation and all that, we, we did several classes on that. They're recorded. You can find them on the, on the website. Um, and so the question we might ask is, what are you meaning by the word sacrifice? In what sense, we ask, on the board of examining chaplains, every seminarian who comes through who wants to be ordained, we ask this question. In what sense is the sacrament of the altar a sacrifice? That's like a a seminarian postulant about to be ordained to the priesthood person who better know his answer to that question. Why not talk about it in the congregation too? What sense is that sacrament of the altar a sacrifice? Okay, let's listen to our own liturgy. We say a full, perfect and sufficient sacrifice, oblation and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. Speaking of the crucifixion of Christ and did institute and in his holy gospel command us to continue a perpetual memory of that his precious death and sacrifice. So there are a couple elements of this that are undeniably at least at the very least a recollection of a perfect sacrifice of Christ, the very least, uh, perpetual memory of that, his precious death and sacrifice. So let's start with that one. Um, and that one's not uh, controversial, because if you don't believe that Christ's sacrifice on our behalf was full, perfect, and sufficient, we've got to go back to theology 101. We've got to go back to the Billy Graham uh, 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 What do you call those things? Everybody comes in a big stadium. Crusade. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Got to go back to the Billy Graham crusade. His crucifixion was full, perfect, and sufficient. In other words, when we're praying that the sacrifice would be sufficient, we're not praying that Christ's sacrifice would be sufficient because we know it's sufficient. That's what we're saying. Okay. But now, in what sense is the sacrament of the altar a sacrifice? We hear our liturgy again. And here we offer and present unto thee, O Lord, ourselves, our souls and bodies, to be a reasonable, holy, and living sacrifice unto thee. Now, we know that Christ's sacrifice 
is perfect, full, and sufficient. But we're not so sure about that one that we just brought. (laughs) Okay? The one that we just brought has a little bit of self-congratulation in it. Has a little bit of minimization of our own sin in it. Has a little bit of overlooking of some of the things we did this week. A little bit of uh, reticence. A little bit of take up your cross and follow me and a, a, a kind of instinct to setting it down at different times. When we offer ourselves, our souls and our bodies, this sacrifice is going to need some help. Pray, brethren, that this my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to God Almighty. May the Lord receive this sacrifice at thy hands, both to the praise and glory of his name and to that of all his holy church. We are uniting our imperfect sacrifice, though we are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table. And what do we say? Um, uh, we We have much more that we say about our sacrifice being imperfect. We are uniting our imperfect sacrifice to his perfect sacrifice. If he is our Lord, if he dwells in us and we dwell in him, then we have a hope. We have a hope that the offering of ourselves can be mingled with his perfect offering and be acceptable. That's what we're trying uh, to pray for. But there's uh, another element of this that's a little bit more mystical than his sacrifice over here, our sacrifice over there. There's an element of this that is temporal here and eternal at all times. This one is, well, there's, a, there's one that will crack your brain open here in just a second, but... The sacrifice of Christ is once offered, a full, perfect, sufficient sacrifice. The Eucharist is the continual representation of Christ and an eternal sacrifice made present. Christ is not re-sacrificed on the altar again and again in any sense, but it is a representation and a participation in a, this is why we keep saying it in the liturgy over and over again, one full, perfect, once for all time, perfect, full, sufficient sacrifice. But it is represented, participated in over and over. And each week, temporally, we join our own selves to him. So summer camp, 1923, you gave your heart to the Lord. (laughs) Uh, 1997, 2022. You gave yourself to the Lord. You were baptized. You confessed your sins. You professed your faith in him. You presented yourself. That was a, a, a wonderful moment. This week, you'll need to do it again. You'll need to offer yourself, your soul, and your body to him. Not because you know it's passed away or something like that, or your relationship with him is not established, But because this week is a whole new set of circumstances. This week, uh, something's going to come to to you that you weren't expecting. And when it comes, you're going to have to say, Lord, have mercy upon me. Uh, Accept my my confession and forgive me for X, Y, and Z. Lord, have mercy upon me. In this perfect sacrifice of Christ, we may participate. To his perfect offering, we add our own. It's eternal for all time, and we add our temporal sacrifice to his. Uh, 
Um, but this idea of the sacrifice underwent a Reformation fervor in the 16th century because the notion of sacrifice at the altar had become, uh, what would the word be? Perverted. Um, it had become misunderstood either intentionally or unintentionally by the clergy, by the church, or by some of the church, I'll say. And so, some late medieval theology had asserted that Calvary was repeated at the altar, and that at every Mass, that Christ was re-sacrificed on the altar again and again and again and again and again, which is terrible theology. But just because theology is terrible doesn't mean it doesn't exist in the world. So it existed in the world. And enough that uh, the reformers noticed people were saying even that Christ's body and blood were sacrificed again and again at each Mass, a bloody sacrifice. And there were, you know, some churches that rejoiced that they had had some apparition of actual blood and flesh on the altar and... uh, you know that this is this is what we're what we're talking about. Um, that notion was so reviled that in combating this idea, reformers often removed all reference to sacrifice. The sacrifice word will be gone forever. Replaced all altars with tables intentionally and had uh, ministers stand at the other side of the table to make it look more like a dinner than look like an altar. Uh, All altars used to have a stone in the center of the altar to signify the, the one full perfect sacrifice of Christ. But in order to do away with the perversion of all ideas of sacrifice, that stone was always removed and it was a bare table, uh, substituted memorialism for real presence, because real presence meant we might slip back into this sacrifice on the altar idea, and often eliminated priests and the whole priesthood and the whole episcopacy and the whole thing. Now that's one way to solve a problem, which is to just pour gasoline all over the whole thing, light it on fire and start over. Uh, and as Anglicans, we say, whoa, 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 <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. Okay. A typical uh, Anglican reform instinct is to try and find the middle way between a perversion on one side and a barn fire on the other side. Okay. Somewhere in the middle is the right understanding. A via media. A middle way. And the middle way, thank the Lord, is older theology. Okay, so if you have a recent theology that's gone bad, go old. Go older, older, older than that. Okay? What to do? Anglicans search for a via media amidst the fog of war, preceding the Radical Reformation minimalism and preceding the late medieval, I'm not knocking transubstantiation in particular, but the language which uh, led people oftentimes, even... uh, led people to that understanding of sacrifice and even led anybody now that hears the word transubstantiation to think what is meant is the bloody sacrifice on the altar. Even though that's not even what was meant by transubstantiation, we so want that done that we have over-associated it. Anyway, that's another thing. 
before all real division of the church, I'm going backwards here, right? Reformation, 16th century. Late medieval transubstantiation talk, 13th century. Before division in the church, 11th century. We're going back to the first millennium of the church. There was a simpler sacramental theology of antiquity. Huzzah! The liturgy of St. James, okay? So in the Orthodox Church today, you'll find the liturgy of St. James used, which was, uh, you know, the first reference you could find to it was 4th century. But why would it be the 4th century? Well, because Christianity suddenly became legal in the 4th century, which means that these words were probably used in the 3rd century or the 2nd century. It is, after all, named after St. James, who is Bishop of Jerusalem. So we're talking an old, 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 old theology. And what do they say? Just before the consecration, just like we're doing, just before the consecration, what do they say? The priest says this. Lord, have mercy upon us since we are full of fear and trembling. When about to stand at your holy altar... And to offer this dread and bloodless sacrifice, that's fourth century, okay? For our own sins and for the errors of the people, send forth, O God, your good grace, and sanctify our souls and bodies and spirits, and turn our thoughts to holiness, that with a pure conscience we may bring to you a peace offering, the sacrifice of praise." priest goes on, by the mercy and loving kindness of your only begotten Son, with whom you are blessed, together with your all-holy and good and quickening spirit, now and always, the people respond, the offering of peace, the sacrifice of praise. Okay, that's not too far from what the Arate Fratres is. Of course, uh, as the Latin church we shrink it, <laughs> make it shorter. The, the Greek and the Eastern Church has a way of elaborating everything into longer, longer services, longer prayers. Latins are more like, let's shrink that down to pray, brethren, this my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to God Almighty. May the Lord receive the sacrifice of the hands both to... Oh, now I jump right in the middle of it. I... I have to go backwards. I'm terrible at jumping into the middle of liturgy. Um, but anyhow, the, the, the Rate Fratres is essentially a shrunk-down version of something that you'd find in the 4th century. And so we're summing up the theology and the practice of the Pray Brethren, the Arate Fratres. Any questions so far? Um, sometimes that can be a challenging uh, notion I will tell you candidly that as your priest, I have resisted the Arate Fratres for a while because of the possibility of it being misunderstood. So to save you from the misunderstanding of it, I just don't put it in at all. That's not uh, a way forward anymore. So I'm going to put it in there. And the misunderstandings need to come out now. Or, or the, the, the resistance uh, should come out so we can hear it. Um, but anyway, there's, there's my uh, pitch for the Arate Fratres. Uh, we should know that most of our churches do use this. And so I'm, in, I'm going to try and institute it here. The sacrament is the sacrifice of Christ in an eternal sense. In other words, you've, if you've been through my confirmation class, you've heard me talk about the cannonball splash of history. So if all history was like a timeline... 
like a still water of a timeline uh, from your perspective beginning of all things creation of all things at this end the end of all things the fulfillment of everything final judgment Christ's incarnation life death and resurrection and ascension is the cannonball splash that goes right into the middle kablooey and waves go all directions backwards and forwards all the sacrifices of the Old Testament temple are fulfilled in the one true Lamb of God. All participation in the sacrifice of the Mass or the altar is simply a participation in that one eternal perfect sacrifice that filled all the Old Testament that gives us hope of everlasting life in Christ in this direction. That's what we're participating in is an eternal uh, reality. To minimize that, to say that Christ is re-sacrificed on the altar is a, a travesty of theology. But you can see how this is a, a, a mystical enough theology that you could easily misunderstand this, and the church has misunderstood it at different times. But uh, that's no reason not to do something. Uh, if you read in the book of Revelation, if you want your brain to explode, Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, when we're speaking of Christ... Uh, St. John, the revelator, says um, of Christ, he is the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. Ooh, if you stop on that one for a little while. If he was slain from the foundation of the world, then in some sense, he was always our sacrifice and always will be our sacrifice. Slain from the foundation of the world of the world. Anyway, so if you're having trouble with the uh, eternal nature of that, you can take a number and join the club. It's too big to comprehend, but that's also not a reason to minimize it or to leave it aside. Uh, None of that is in question, but our worthy participation in that one perfect and sufficient sacrifice is in question. And so we pray. Pray, brethren, that this my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to God, the Father Almighty. May the Lord receive this sacrifice at thy hands to the praise and glory of his name, to our benefit, and to that of all his holy church. Uh, That is the Orate Fratres. It brings us in line with most of our parishes and with the ancient tradition of the church. And so I ask you for questions and comments about the Arate Fratres. This is also one that will not catch you off guard. First of all, because you'll hear me first say, pray, brethren. And then if in that moment you say, oh, I forgot what I'm supposed to say, it's right there in your bulletin. Uh, As most traditional Anglicans will attest after a while, like much of the rest of the liturgy, it just comes out of you. You just say it. <laughs> you don't have to look at your bulletin anymore. But ready for uh, questions or comments about the Arate Fratres? Anybody? Yes, please. Um, in our service, several times it's mentioned the word sacrifice. Right. Right. Besides what the sacrifice would be, to talk to a person who says to you, why is your service so intent upon sacrifice and blood? 
Yeah, well, I would say... Just bring them in. Yeah. Not explain everything. Just to bring them in to calm them down. Right. So... for those who didn't hear, who are listening to this recording, uh, the question is why would, how would you explain to a person how insistent our liturgy and service is on blood? And even saying the words like that we may eat his flesh and drink his blood. And I will tell you, uh, it's not just us. If you went to a Baptist church and started singing about the blood of the lamb, are you covered in the blood? Uh, you know, you might, if you had been completely uh, oblivious to the notion of that sacrifice of the Old Testament, the idea of the blood and the participation, I think a lot of Christian churches would seem odd, right? You would discover as soon as, the, as soon as you entered into the church that this is not the Rotary Club and this is not the bowling alley. They're talking a language here that I don't get. But if someone came up to you and said, I don't know if I could continue going to a church that keeps talking about blood like that. The first thing you could say is if you don't believe in the scriptures, this is going to be hard. Because the scriptures are cram packed full of discussion about blood and sacrifice. Right from the very, I'm talking Genesis chapter 3, we're already in blood. Um, Cain and Abel. We're already in sacrifices. Cain made a sacrifice that was unacceptable, and uh, Abel made a sacrifice that was a blood sacrifice already. If, you, if, if this person is totally uncomfortable with the Bible, and you're, and you're saying uh, the crucifixion hasn't occurred to them yet, um, you could probably, what I would typically do is I would point out the nature of the fall. And each of us, as St. Augustine says, uh, has a God-sized hole inside of us. We can sense something's missing, something's missing, and something's wrong. (laughs) Something's missing, missing, something's wrong. If you go to any animist culture, animist religion, in the jungles of whatever part of the world, you'll find that instinctively they have sensed something's wrong in their heart and in their soul, and a sacrifice must be made. They take the best pig that they have. They sacrifice to Molech or whatever god they can think of, the tree god, the, the lake god, the, the god that brings the, the clouds, and they'll find something valuable and sacrifice it. It's not that odd. It's actually deep within the human experience for all of human experience. It's just that our culture is so cleansed of all things like that that we think the world is Starbucks and Target and new tires today and uh, uh, oil change and TV. That's life. That's real life. It's sandwiches and french fries. And you get to this church and they say blood. And you go, brother, these religious people. I would say, hold on a second. If you're not willing to think about your life at all, well then, sorry. I don't know what to tell you. (laughs) There's donuts in the coffee hall, (laughs) in the parish hall. But uh, I would say it's not that, it's not as strange as you're thinking. It's only strange because we're in a first world country where everybody's so enlightened. And life is, you know, coffee and 
cigarettes or whatever it is now. Pie. That's an old one. Coffee and pie. <laughs> uh, Jack. Of course, as you know, none of, none of these developments through the centuries are due to clever wordsmithing by some church fathers. Right. It all stems from Christ told us to do this. Right. It's a command. Right. Read his institution of the Lord's Supper. Right. It's his command. We do it because we are followers of our king. Right. I'll, I'll say this. Um, John chapter 6. Jesus had just multiplied loaves and fishes. He had just crossed the lake. People had followed him to where he was and had said, do that loaves and fish thing again because we're hungry. And he says, no, I won't do it. I'm the bread. And then he goes even further and says, anyone who does not eat me and drink my blood, and the word he uses for uh, eat my flesh is crunch between the teeth, crunch between the teeth, my flesh and drink my blood has no life in him. At that moment, it was not understandable. He had not yet instituted the sacrament. God is not against telling you to do something without explaining it. If you want evidence of it, there's plenty of places in the scripture where he tells someone to do something, they don't quite understand it yet. When he institutes the sacrament uh, and the disciples who heard him say that bit about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, when he says, this is my body, this is my blood, I'm sure they said, now I get it. Now I see it. I get it. Um, When he yet had not sacrificed himself, he instituted the sacrament. They thought they got it until he sacrificed himself. And now they see this is even more. Now we're participating in his own sacrifice by ourselves. To come to that sacrifice presumptuously is not meet and right so to do. You should come bringing your own sacrifice like Cain or Abel, hopefully Abel, not Cain. And that's part, partly what's going on here is may our sacrifice be something like Abel's and not Cain's. We don't know what was wrong with Cain's offering. Don't know. But the scriptures say that when, he, uh, that when Cain's sacrifice was not accepted, the Lord said to him, why are you sad? If you offer an acceptable sacrifice, it will be accepted. That was his opportunity to repent and turn. Instead, he went and killed Abel. Pray, brethren, that this my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to God, Father Almighty. May the Lord receive this sacrifice at thy hands to the praise and glory of his name. Oh, I can never do it. (laughs) I'll have it in front of me. I'll get it soon. But uh, that's that's an element of what's going on here. Uh, Gene. Okay. And it comes in the military. Yeah. yeah. So we can only explain somebody dying in Afghanistan by the, saying they sacrificed for our country, and we hear that a lot. Oh, that's good. Yeah, they sa- the reason we have freedom today is because there's uh, countless men that have shed their blood on foreign uh, lands for the most part, and sometimes on this land. And we benefit from it. So it's not that odd to think about that. Yeah, that would be a, if it was a military veteran, you might be able to say, you shed your blood on behalf of someone else or you know people who have, right? That's not that different from what we're doing here. 
except for that it was expedient for one to be sacrificed for all. And we will never forget that. You know, even, even the idea, never forget. You know, 9-11, never forget. But we have a never forget also. A sacrifice was made. Um, so I'm going to get on to this. I think this is the last slide for today. Uh, Orate Episcopos. Pray Bishop. Okay? Here's our bishop. Uh, a great thing about the Missal tradition is that as other churches tend to contemporize and think that the urgency of their church is to contemporize things so that what appeals to Starbucks and sandwiches and TV at night will also appeal, you know, to everyone else. Maybe I said that the wrong way, but what I'm trying to say is let's make this more palatable, more understanding, or more understandable. Most churches are contemporizing or minimizing worship and theology. We are tending to reach back further into history and say not only we're not contemporizing, is, there, is ancientize a word? <laughs> we're ancientizing. We're reaching back. That's a great thing about the missile tradition. There are difficulties uh, with the missile tradition. The reason that everyone doesn't bring one of these home is some prayers, observances, and rubrics are easily misunderstood, very easily. Some of the prayers in here are downright misleading, and I don't pray them because I'm afraid that you'll be misled, and I'm not going to do it. Uh, Others require real pastoral discretion. If you're going to do a particular observance, it's not like they're evil or something like that. It's just it requires a lot of teaching on the front end, in my opinion. And uh, if our uh, annual observance ain't broke, I'm not going to try and fix it, except maybe on Lent. Maybe on Lent we'll tweak it here and there. We're tweaking. Um, But to add uh, uh, a big feast that's hard to understand, you know, I've got the long view in mind, and I'm not sure they're always so helpful. But uh, that would be the difficulty with the Missal tradition. The nice thing about the prayer book is it's so simple, so straight up. Uh, it's good to reach back into antiquity, but you really need a shepherd, an overseer. You really need uh, a clergyman. You need somebody saying, I think for this flock, that's not going to be helpful this year. Maybe next year or something like that. And so I'm trying to do that. But also our bishop is trying to do that for, for the diocese and for the province. And I'm trying to be a good under-shepherd uh, of, our, of our episcopos, our overseer, our bishop. So there's liturgical addition and subtraction bonus session. Next week we're starting a new topic, but uh, we're starting the examination or an examination of conscience next week. Um, any further final questions for the leaven of liturgy? Uh, Frank, yeah. Is there much difference between our missal and, say, the Catholic Church's missal? That's a great question that I don't know the answer to. I'll just come out and say it. I don't know much about the Roman uh, tradition. I do know that they translated into English in the 70s. 60s, 70s, the, the, the liturgy went English. We were English since the 16th century. So much of our uh, English is Elizabethan and really at the height of the English language. 16th, 17th century is where most of our liturgy was translated from Latin. 
is it different? It's a head-scratcher because we're really family members. We're Western Christians uh, who descend from the Latin tradition. The place where they get their ancient liturgy is the same place we get our ancient liturgy. And so there's not a great distinction. Just some of these translations were done much, much earlier in the English church than they were in the Latin church. And we don't answer to the bishop or to their liturgical committees. So I don't know the answer. Sorry. Um, You know, you may resist the idea of anything being Roman. However, I mean, for a thousand years of the Western church, everything was Roman. How do you get away from that? That's what it is. Um, So unless unless you go to the Eastern church, well, then everything's, you know, Byzantine. Or, or however you want to say it, uh, it just is. It's Western Church, so yeah, you're going to find a lot of similarities. Any other questions or comments? Going once, going twice, the end. Thank you. <laughs> <clears throat>